0: How many people have worked a full day? Okay, not as many as... How many people still have to go to work today? Oh, okay, wow. So not as many as I was thinking uh, worked a full day. Good, so you guys have no excuse to fall asleep with me tonight, right? Right. Oh, I already hear it. Who was that? What? So we will be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 briefly, but... Uh, I wanted to do something a little differently tonight. not really going to be much exposition. It's not going to be much exegeting the scriptures, but we're going to base it upon a foundational principle within the Bible. What I would like to do tonight is present an argument as far as why theology matters. Now, many people, when they hear the word theology... They're like, ooh, theology, I don't know. Sounds boring, you know. Or theology, I'm not smart enough to understand theology. that's nonsense. If anybody knows me well enough, they know that I can talk for days about theology. Some people's passion is knocking on doors. Some people's passion is singing. My passion is studying and talking about theology. And so what I want to do tonight is make an argument, a compelling argument on why does theology even matter in the life of a Christian? Well, I want to ask you a question. How many people know who Warren Jeffs is? Okay, so a lot of people on this side. Warren Jeffs, for those of you that do not know, he was the leader of the Fundamental Latter-day Saints, i.e. Fundamental Mormons. He is in prison serving a lifetime sentence for countless acts of pedophilia. He would marry very young women, I think as even as young as 10 or 12, uh, within their Fundamental Mormon sect. And so he's serving a lifetime prison sentence. Would you be his friend? Would you want to be his friend? No? Okay. What about Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy has been convicted of raping and murdering dozens of young women. Would you want to be his friend? Well, you need a lot of silence here. What about Hitler? Would you want to be Hitler's friend? No. Okay. I was just curious. So tonight, like I said, I want to talk about why theology matters. Really based out of 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 15. Paul says, study to show thyself approved who? Unto God. Not unto man, but approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It doesn't say rightly dividing the confessions. It doesn't say rightly dividing the creeds. It doesn't say rightly dividing the canons of Dort. It says, rightly dividing the scriptures. And so what we want to look at tonight is, does theology matter? And a lot of people, last time I did this, they really liked my little comic strips, my stick figures. And so tonight's presentation is based off of 2 Timothy 2.15 in comic book stick figure form, if you will. And so if you like it, great. If you don't, I'm sorry. Hopefully this will keep you awake a little bit. So here we got our guy. He's thinking, does theology matter? Well, you You got to really ask ask yourself, yourself, what what is theology? theology? So I ask, who can tell me what theology is in your own words? What is theology? Anybody, just yell it out. Knowledge of God. What? Study of God. Huh? A belief system. Study the whole system. Okay, out of everything that everybody said, does that matter? The knowledge of God, the study of God, the whole system, and what was over here again? The belief, belief system, does that matter? Does your belief matter? Does your knowledge of God matter? Theology comes from uh, two Greek words, God in words or sayings, logos, Uh, In English, it's really translated as the study of God or the knowledge of God as well. If you were to ask a lot of people, a lot of people, they'll tell you that the study of, or theology is, in essence, the sayings of God or God's sayings. And so, what we want to look at, does theology matter? Now that we have a definition, okay, what does theology mean? A belief system. The knowledge of God. The study of God. The sayings of God. So, if... All of these are true definitions of theology, and it all has to deal with God, the creator. Does our theology matter? Yes. Theology is the most important thing we can wrestle with and try to understand this side of heaven. Now, how many theologies are there? There's a lot of theologies. In essence, systematic theology is really talking about when you're looking at the whole counsel of God, the whole Scripture, it's going to break down different teachings, different doctrines of God in these various areas. Theology proper is the study of God the Father, Christology is Christ, Pneumatology is the Spirit, Hamartiology is sin, Angelology, Demonology, Satanology, Eschatology is end times, Ecclesiology is the church, and Soteriology is salvation. There's a lot more. There's a lot of theologies to study, right? So if these are organized, and it's important to know what God says, sayings of God, then it'd be important to know these, right? And Study the scriptures. This is where the study of the scriptures is a lifelong endeavor. And it says that we are to study, to show ourselves approved unto God. Not that I'm supposed to read a book about what somebody says about ecclesiology, but for me to study what does scripture say about ecclesiology, the church, or about sin, or whatever the case is. Because sometimes good, good, well-meaning people can have bad theology, and now if that's the only books we're reading, now we've adopted a bad theological system. Out of all these, I would argue there's one in here that we should have a very good grasp on Anybody thoughts? What one of these that I just named off should we have a really good grasp of? Christology. Christ, okay, that's a good one, definitely. Mm-hmm. Soteriology. Any others? If you had to rank them for one through three, what would be your top three? I'm curious. And if you're watching online, feel free to chime in, comment as well, what you think your top three theologies are. So again, you got God the Father, Christ, Spirit, Sin, Angels, Demons, Satan, End Times, the Church, and Salvation. What would you say? Who would put uh, Christology in your top three? Okay, God the Father, top three. Holy Spirit, top three. Who? I saw somebody's hand go down. Where would Soteriology go in there? I'm with Brock, number one. If soteriology is how mankind can find redemption in Christ, then it would do well that that's one of the most important theologies to understand and get a grasp of. We can know all there is to know about God the Father, all there is to know about Christ, all there is to know about the Holy Spirit. But if we get soteriology wrong, it doesn't matter what we know about those others because we are still separated, not reconciled with God we have got to get soteriology right. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to look at a particular theological system to really prove my point on why theology matters. And in specifics, soteriology, the doctrine, the study of salvation or how one can be justified. And of course, I'm just going to pick on tulip, Calvinism. I'm only using this because this is the most commonly, well, most commonly known theological system out there. I could talk about Arminianism. I could talk about Provisionism. But for a second tonight, I'm talking about Calvinism. So Calvinism really stems from, it actually goes back probably about a thousand years before John Calvin. But in the late 1500s, there was a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, and he, in opposition to john calvin's theological system, he developed five points of his own, which we now know as Arminianism and so Arminianism was developed shortly after his death. The Synod of Dort, which was held in the Netherlands was was uh, assembled to go ahead and counter the rising Arminian view and the Synod of Dort is basically hundred I think it was one hundred and fifty if you will, reformed theologians, mainly Presbyterians, that met around to discuss okay, how are we going to refute these five pillars, if you will, of Arminianism? And so in the Synod of Dort, they came across, they developed what's known as the Canons of Dort. These are the five main bullet points, if you will, on them replying to Arminians' five points, which were replying to Calvinism. And so Arminians fighting Calvinism, Calvinism fighting Arminianism. So canons of Dort are the five main points. A lot of times they're known as the doctrines of grace. So you have this. Late 1800s, there's a man by the name of Cleland McAfee. He developed what we now know as tulip today. And so there was a couple of different words that were a little different in his version of it. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to take the canons of Dort. He wanted to put it to an acronym so that it would be easily memorized. And so you got TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. T-U-L-I-P. His was, un- instead of unconditional election, it was unconditional sovereignty. And there's one or two others where his words st- steered a little bit differently from the tulip we know today, which I think was formulated by Lorraine Botner. So this is how tulip came. Tulip came from the late 1800s because tulip was really a response to the Armenian doctrine. Now what's going on is in the world, at least over there in Europe, there's this false dichotomy Believing that if you're not a Calvinist, you're Arminian. If you're not Arminian, you're a Calvinist. And so you have to be in one of those two camps, and that's known as the either or fallacy or a false dichotomy. Those aren't the only two camps one can fall under, label wise, if you will. And so this is really where TULIP, i.e., Calvinism, if, if you will, has been established. So we're gonna look at tulip and what tulip actually teaches. Total depravity, unconditional, election limited, atonement, irresistible, grace, and perseverance of the saints. Because when we want to look at this framework, we're gonna see why does understanding this, accepting it, or rejecting it matter? Why does it matter? And those three people I showed you pictures of earlier, there's a reason I showed you those three pictures. Total depravity, what does it mean? Just like we had to define theology, what does theology mean? What does total depravity mean? Depravity is a biblical concept. It's within scripture. But you've got to define your terms. All the quotes I'm going to use, I'm going to use from people that are Calvinists. These are reformed pastors, preachers, theologians, scholars. This is not somebody that is anti-Calvinist trying to say what they said. This is from Calvinists that believe in this. So what is total depravity? According to the Westminster Confession, which was held, I believe, in the 1600s, took four years to develop pretty much the statement of faith, the doctrine of Calvinists, as well as the practice of Calvinists. It was held in London, they say man by his fall into a state of sin wholly lost all ability of will all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation so as natural man being brought together averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto in other words they're saying that because of the sin of Adam in the garden of Eden man can't remedy his lost condition I would agree with we can't do anything to, any to our eternal life but man can't even desire to fix himself. The canons of Dort. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath. They are neither able nor willing to return to God. They are neither able or willing. They don't even want to try to fix their lost estate. Arthur Pink, as a creature, the natural man is responsible to love, obey and serve God. As a sinner, he is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. But at the outset we're confronted with the fact that natural man is unable to love and serve God and that the sinner of himself cannot repent and believe. This is a staunch Calvinist. Many of you know A.W. Pink, may have read his stuff. But my question in his statement here is if man cannot believe the gospel, how is man responsible to believe in the gospel. Even in his own quote and saying, he says man's responsible, a sinner, he's responsible, but the sinner cannot believe. So how can the sinner be responsible if God does not grant the sinner the ability or the desire or the willingness to believe? You see, and I had to pull up this quote too. This one's not on the slide, but I want to read off this quote for you real quick as well. And it goes that, Lorraine Botner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination says the Calvinist is under no obligation to explain all the mysteries connected with these doctrines so I would like to ask Pink you say that the sinner is responsible but the sinner of himself cannot even believe but the Calvinist answer is typically mystery of God sovereignty of God we don't have to explain it we just talk it up to the God of the gaps argument Okay, so depravity, unconditional election. So if someone can't believe the gospel, how does anybody get saved if anybody gets saved at all? This is unconditional election. Mitchell Persaud says election is God's unconditional choice of those people he decided to save through the substitutionary sacrificial death of his son. The Westminster Confession in 1600 said, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, he decreed some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life. So God predestinated some men and some angels unto everlasting life. So naturally the question is if God predestined some men to everlasting life, what about those that God did not predestinate, right? This is a natural logical question. Well, a lot of times those that believe in Calvinist theology, they'll say... God does not perform double predestination. That's what they call it. Double predestination is God will predestinate some to heaven and God will d- predestinate some to hell. It's called pr- double predestination. Like, oh, predestination. No, we don't believe that. So let's ask, if God chooses who's elected and only those who are elected, saved, go to heaven, then that, that does that mean that people who are not saved go to hell because God just didn't elect them? Westminster Confession, by the decree of God and the manifestation of his glory... Some men and angels are foreordained to everlasting death. Joel Beek on Calvin on Sovereignty, Providence, Predestination. Calvin writes, citing John Calvin, by his just and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment, he has barred the door of life to those whom he has given over to damnation. So in other words, paint a visual picture. God is like this, holding the door shut to anybody that may even want to open the door to salvation because God has done that according to Calvinist theology. Westminster Confession goes on and says, for those wicked ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins does blind and harden, for them he not only withholds his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon their hearts. Okay. Double predestination is a logical conclusion to the Calvinist theology of unconditional election. And even those Calvinists that understand this, admit it. That according to Calvinist theology, God has elected some to heaven and God has elected some to hell. For his good pleasure. According to the Westminster Confession, I could pull up Canons of Dor, I could pull up Joel Beek, Mitchell Persaud, uh, Thomas uh, Lorraine Botner, uh, and some others that you're going to see as well. So then naturally the question is, okay, so just the elect go to heaven. So why did Jesus die for everybody's sin on the cross? Why did Jesus die for, when I am lifted on the cross, I will draw all men to me. Or First John 2, 2, for he is pitiation of the sins, not only for ours, but sins of the whole world. For God said his son, So that we all, whosoever, believes. So if Jesus Christ died on the cross for all people, how does that play a role in just for the elect? Well, again, according to the Calvinist, limited atonement means that Christ only died for those elect. Jesus did not die for anybody God did not choose to save. He goes on to say some people argue that Jesus did not die for a definite number, which is what I would say, but that he died simply to make salvation possible for the world because that's what the Bible says. In their minds, God is at the mercy of individual choices and hands are tied. Those who teach this error weaken the wonder of Christ's atonement. What I want you to notice about this quote is he's saying that even though 1 John 2 2 says he's propitiation of the sins of the whole world. Even in the book of 1 Timothy, it says Jesus Christ is the ransom for all to be testified in due time. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Whenever the Bible speaks of Jesus died for all or Jesus died for the world. Calvinist theology has to redefine the word world or the word all to mean all kinds, all types of people instead of all men. We would argue that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, he made salvation possible for whosoever believeth because it's not a a sin problem that we go to hell with. Jesus says in John chapter 3 it's because of unbelief. Because we don't believe. The sin debt's been paid, but we need to receive that debt, that ransom for us. And we do that by belief in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But they're saying, if Jesus Christ died for all and not all are saved, then in essence, God's hands are tied and it all stems back to the sovereignty of God. Calvinist theology overemphasizes the sovereignty of God to the neglect and detriment of the love, mercy, and grace of God. And I I got much more quotes I could show you offline, too, but suffice it to say, for now, this is what they're teaching. All right, so man is unable to believe the gospel unless God gives him the ability to believe. But God won't give anybody the ability to believe unless God elected them for salvation. And those that God elected for salvation, those are the only ones Jesus died for on the cross. He didn't die for you or me if we're non-elect. And if that's the case, then the question is, if Jesus died only for the elect, and the elect can't believe on their own, how does anybody become elect? How does anybody believe in the gospel? This is where the irresistible grace comes in. The spirit's operation in the ministry of this grace cannot be resisted, but will work so effectively that the sinner cannot but willingly and freely repent and believe. Do you see any ironic statement in there? Do you see anything that's comical in that statement there? I know you do, Brock, because it looked like you smirked. So he says the spirit's operation... Cannot be resisted, period, dot, can't be resisted. But then he says that the sinner freely believes. If it can't be resisted, how can man freely, volitionally believe? A lot of times, myself included, we all do this, we write a lot of words, we write something that sounds really good, but then we go to edit or it gets it gets scrutinized and peer review and things like that, we find out that what we wrote isn't that accurate. So we need to make some edits. This is just one of many quotes that are very contradictory and self-defeating. Another one. Look at the work of the Holy Spirit that pulls men to Christ and keeps them there. He references Ezekiel thirty-six, 26, 7. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of, heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And within Calvinist theology, Ezekiel 36 is talking about that those God-elected God will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you can respond. Brock, what's this passage talking about? He, I know you do. It's talking about the new covenant with Israel. That in the end times, when they turn and acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, this is part of the fulfillment of the new covenant. And you can see it because there is an absolute... I will put my spirit within you and cause you and you will keep my judgments. That's a promise made to the Jewish remnant in the end times when they acknowledge Messiah and then they will receive this new heart, if you will, and they will walk in perfect obedience to Messiah in the kingdom. That's what this is talking about. But what we see oftentimes is what's known as proof text fallacies sometimes well-meaning people, but sometimes we will take a verse because we think it fits what we're talking about and we will put it over there and say this one fits. But we don't understand the context behind it or what it actually means. I've done it before. I'll probably do it again. That's the danger of topical preaching and teaching because we can take any verse to make it say anything we want, but we have to understand it in its context. All right, so, if God has to force man to believe, and man cannot believe unless God forces him to believe, who's to blame for not believing? So if I'm not elect and I don't believe, am I at fault? People are condemned because they reject the gospel's call by the hardness of their hearts. But when we talked about total depravity in the beginning, we saw that man doesn't even have the desire or the will to believe, I could show you quote after quote where Calvinist theology says that God has to save you before you can get saved. He regenerates you inside so that you are open to receiving that irresistible draw. And so if mankind has no desire to even want to remedy their condition, why is mankind responsible for rejecting it? if god doesn't give man the desire to want to believe it doesn't make sense within calvinism there's so many non, so many contradictory statements so then we get to the p perseverance of the saints all right so i can't believe unless god makes me believe i'm not going to believe unless i'm the elect and if i'm one of the elect then jesus died only for me and if i'm the elect then I will be irresistibly drawn to him. That's how I'll become elect and saved. So how do I know if I'm the elect, right? First John 5.13 says that we can know, these things I've written, that you may know that you have eternal life in the present tense. But how do I know if I'm one of the elect? Westminster Confession These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith having their fruit unto holiness they may have the end eternal life So this is where the view like Piper gets the idea of final salvation that you don't truly have eternal life until you uh, end up dying and then if you persevere to the end then you're actually saved you proved yourself to be a genuine believer R.C. Sproul he is a very, was a very well known theologian he says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. This may be understood as a condition for salvation or a veiled promise of eternal salvation. Eternal endurance is a, in faith is a condition for future salvation. What is Matthew twenty-four, thirteen? he who endures to the end shall be saved in reference to? Do we remember? It's in reference to one of two things. It's so either in reference to the Jewish people during the day of Jesus when uh, he pronounced the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 that those that fled would be delivered or some reference to the Jewish remnant in the ends, when the Antichrist comes up and they're the ones that flee to Basra that are divinely protected and they're the ones that petition for Jesus Christ to come back and deliver them. This is not talking about everlasting life. This is talking about physical salvation if we read it in the context of the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus gave it. Again, proof text verses. So, I can know if I'm elect, if I'm doing good, right? So it says the fruits are evidences of being elect. But then they say you have to endure to the end to have the final salvation. So, I can know if I'm doing good that I'm one of the elect, right? Well, Thomas Buhr says, if it is certain that the one who is regenerated and comes to faith will persevere, then the one who does not continue in the faith has demonstrated, after all, he is nothing more than unregenerate unbeliever. He never truly believed. You could believe right now. You could have all the good works right now. 10, 20 years down the road, some tragedy, crisis happens in your life, and you walk away from God because you just can't understand the tragedy in your life and you walk away. They say you were never a Christian to begin with. What about the book of James? The book of James, right to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the dispersion, one of the many dispersions. It's not about losing salvation or proving salvation. It's about having faith in Christ. It's about discipleship. It's about ministering to the people. The Canons of Dort says that hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in the estate of salvation. This is where some within Calvinist theology teach what's known as spurious faith or fake faith, false faith, faith that you you think you're genuinely a, a saved Christian, but really you're not. And according to them, God gives spurious faith to people. According to Calvinist theology, God makes somebody believe they're a Christian, but in reality, they're not. This is Calvinist theology. So I may do good works, even believe in God, yet it's possible I'm deceiving myself. So, let's recap this. I can't believe in the gospel unless God makes me believe. I can only believe in God if he elected me. And though the Bible says Jesus died for all people, he only truly died for me if I'm elect. And since I can't believe if I'm elected, God will force me to believe. But the only way to know if I ever was elected was if I endured to the end of good faith. And even then I may have deceived myself. Do I even believe? You see, I asked this question in the beginning, Would you want to be friends with these three people? No, everybody said, no, they wouldn't want to be friends, right? Why? Why would you not want to be friends with any of these? Just yell it out. Why? Bad Bad, what? (laughs) Evil? Don't want to be raped or murdered. (laughs) Good one. Right? Huh? Lost people? Huh? Nothing. (laughs) Would it be safe to say that they were cruel, sadistic, and even dictator? Sadistic meaning that some of them enjoyed inflicting pain on people. If anything, what we just got done talking about, the theology within Calvinism teaches that is God. the God predestined some to be saved, that God also predestined some to go to hell, that no one can even desire to be saved unless God forces them with the desire to be saved. And oh, by the way, even if you think you have a desire to be saved, God is barring that door so you can't be saved. Other quotes go on to say that God will even make sure that the gospel is prevented from going to the non-elect. And they use the book of Acts where Paul wanted to go to a part in Asia Minor and it said the Holy Spirit forbade him. So they take that verse and say, see, because of that, God didn't want them to be saved and so he didn't let Paul. So because of that, God will prevent the non-elect to be saved as well. That is why theology matters. I have some Calvinist friends some of my Calvinist friends love Jesus so much. They serve him fervently. Not every Calvinist believes all of this. And the problem is not the Calvinist. The problem is the theology within Calvinism. That's the problem. Because it teaches that God is a sadistic, Cruel, malevolent dictator. And it's been around since Augustine. This didn't come up with John Calvin. Even Paul in the book of Galatians dealt with legalizers. It's replete throughout the New Testament. And Gnostics want to appeal to a a higher mystery as far as how to get saved. Theology matters. A whole lot. And if you take anything away from tonight, realize that what you and I believe about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, will affect how people view God and how you view other people. Because if there's a shred of evidence that somebody is struggling, they're living life in sin... Instead of saying, hey, what's going on? Why are you struggling? Your theology teaches you you're not even saved. You got to get resaved because you're not a Christian because Christians don't do that. Rather than finding out they just lost their spouse or their daughter or, or their son or whatever, they just had a tragedy and they just went off the rails. Rather than trying to minister and reconcile them through discipleship, you castigate them. Because that's what the theology teaches. Calvinists are not the problem. I love, I love, I have a lot of Calvinist friends. The problem is the theology they've adopted. And it's not Arminian, it's not Calvinism. I just chose to pick on Calvinism. But if we get soteriology wrong, then it doesn't matter what we get right because nobody's getting to heaven. We have got to find out how do we get saved? Are we unable to do it? Yes, we are unable to save ourselves. Do we have the ability or the desire to want to get saved? Calvinism says no. I say yes because the Bible says yes. And so a lot of churches, a lot of people They don't want to get into the whole Calvinism, Arminianism, free grace or any of this. They don't want to get into those debates because it causes division. But what we're doing we're sacrificing how to get saved. And that's a big problem. And if we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God then we need to really consider theologies to include our own theology to find out if it holds up to scrutiny. So that's why theology matters. It affects your view on God. It affects your view on your world. Let alone the view on yourself as well. Because if you're trying to figure out if you're saved because you're looking at your works, (laughs) you're going to fail regularly. But if I look at the cross and I look at the promise of God because he says if I believe I have everlasting life, guess what? My faith, the salvation is dependent upon God's word and God's promise and God's power. Not on anything I can do. That's why theology matters. So I hope it matters to you too. If not, maybe tonight was a start. Let us pray. God, I thank you just for uh, just this burden. And Lord, I pray that we can get theology right, that we can have a desire and a burden to study theology accurately and appropriately. And, and while we can learn from others' writings and, and confessions and creeds, we can learn for sure. Allow us to be influenced by your word. Allow us to study your word and not the words of man. And Allow us to accurately understand how to interpret and apply it to our lives. So, Lord, tonight was not an attack on Calvinists, but it was an attack on theologies. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a burden to help reach people that are in bondage of certain theologies. And help them to find the freedom there is within Christ and the salvation he offers to whosoever believes. So we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.